Programming Throwdown, episode 133, Solving for the Market Price Problem with Andrew Yates. Take it away, Patrick. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another exciting interview. Today, we have Andrew Yates from Promoted AI, co-founder and CEO there. So welcome to the show, Andrew. Hi, thanks for having me. So we have a lot of interesting things. We were doing our, I guess, our pre-shows inside baseball. We talked to Andrew for a few minutes before we start. (laughs) And, you know, I think there's a number of topics we've never really talked about before. So I'm excited to dig in. But first, we always ask people, how did you kind of get into programming? What is like your first programming experience? We can start there. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's a great question. When I was in high school, there was a a program where Apple Computer provided a bunch of free laptops for students. And I just loved it. And I remember it was, it was like this silly, true basic little developer environment. And and I remember I, I was like, wow, I can make my own games. And like, yeah. Just, so I, I made like all of these rocket game. And I remember coding the theme for Zelda using like, you have to use like the actual integers for the tones. So it's like trying to figure oh, out wow. the, the spacing of it. And I don't know, I just really got into it. And then I was getting into web design. So this was for me, it was back in, in high school. And I just the joy of, oh my gosh, I could control this computer. And I ended up buying my own computer. Yeah, actually for me, I... Geez, I remember I, I worked at McDonald's for like $5 an hour and saved up for like $1,500 on my own computer so I could do it. You know, I guess I played some games on it too, but it was the joy of just being able to not only build things and see it work, but also for me, I, I love the entrepreneurial aspect of it. I started my own web design agency, you know, and I was in high school and that kind of stuff. I ended up skipping school and joined an e-commerce company. I, I live in the Midwest. It wasn't a very successful e-commerce company, but like, I'm sorry if we processed your credit card because I wrote that code, you know, like, oh, but no. it was awesome. Like I, I actually, I, they did like take my test at school and then like kind of skip out. And it was an interesting time. But anyways, that that's how I got started. <laughs> oh, very good. So do you still have all those old programs or are they lost to the bit? Oh, absolutely the not. No, uh, of course not. <laughs> and they're not good either. It was just, I don't know, the, the joy of seeing, writing something and then watching it run was pretty exciting. Yeah, I came across an old game I wrote in college for a class and played it for a few minutes. And it's like, wow, this is really bad. That was before <laughs> a lot of the I'll date myself a bit, I guess. I was before a lot of the sort of frameworks and stuff that make writing games a little bit easier today. So that'll be my excuse. So then did you end up going to college for programming or did you end up going straight into kind of working? Oh, no, I went to school for computer science and then I ultimately did master's and I did a PhD and I was going to do bioinformatics. I I, I wanted to work on curing cancer and I was really interested in genomics and I thought like, oh, the cell would be the, the next engineering platform or some ridiculous kind of idea, which it sounds cool, but no, that's not the case. And I ended up switching out of cancer research and joined the technology industry and came out here to San Francisco. Nice. Yeah. So I, speaking of, I've been this recent hobby now with, you can get print on demand plasmids. And so actually like that whole, I was, I remember that phase where, oh, the DNA computer or whatever, yeah. but now you actually can sort of like from your garage, basically like inject custom DNA information into cells and stuff. It's a fascinating rabbit hole. Yeah, it's getting, that That should be the next guest you should have is someone on, in, in that space. But uh, 10 years ago or so, it, it wasn't anything like that. It was like, oh, you could do your own PCR test, which we did do. 
that that's like you're watching little paper blotter is it, it didn't really blow people's mind yeah that's true running the gel yeah i mean now pcr people associate with something completely different than they did 10 years ago so now pcr tests are all about covid yeah yeah no <laughs> so very good so how did you end up at promoted ai and, and getting that off the ground yeah. So a little bit about leaving PhD program, I figured, well, hey, I, if I'm not going to be curing cancer, do the industry of the area, which is ads. So learn about that. Join Facebook. And I did. So I worked at Facebook ads back in optimization and then later Twitter and then Pinterest. But before I went into that, I was always like I, I mentioned, I just the startup dreams. I, I had always wanted to start my own company. The idea was I would go work in industry for some time, learn the ropes, learn the industry, get some deep insider knowledge about how it works and and then start my own company and promoted ai is that so i think just recently there was a, a y combinator video about doing big tech but you need to have a plan about when you're going to leave to do your startup otherwise you'll never leave and i did that oh very good yeah i think that I mean, I guess being in that area, that's true. People talk about it as golden handcuffs. It's not exactly what golden handcuffs mean, I think. But for people who don't know, once you start working at those big tech companies, often it comes with stock grants that vest over a certain number of years. And then if the company stock grows, all of a sudden not having a plan means you're faced with leaving a very lucrative job in order to sort of go to uh, kind of do your own. This is a bit of a tangent, but... Look, that is a fantastic problem to have. Oh, no, look at all of the money that I'm making. Like, really? And look, oh, I have this fantastic resume. I think the challenge, though, is if your goal is to start your own company or you have ambitions to ha do more than simply have a fantastic career, then you eventually have to not be doing that. It's a good problem to have of, oh, no, I have this fantastic career at a company that I like. I guess if you hate your job, that's another issue. But I just want to call out that the, the golden handcuffs, you can leave, you can quit, but you stay because it pays well and the work isn't typically that challenging, although it can be frustrating if you are really passionate about building your own system or doing it in a much better way. And in fact, that's the motivation for promoted AI and, and our recruitment pitch for the people that we've hired is, Look, you've been there, done that for big tech. If they're going to pay, if someone's going to pay you X, it's worth a lot more to them. It's worth Y is greater than X. Like you have to be worth more to whoever's paying you. However much you're getting paid, someone's paying you that amount, right? And you've kind of been there, done that. And you know, the way the sausage is being made at some of these tech companies is pretty sloppy, really sloppy, and you're tired of it. And this is especially for the type of marketplace optimization work that we do where I do believe that Facebook and Google do a fantastic job. This is their core business, and this is what they're really good at. But if you go down the list of every other company, I mean, even Pinterest, but different marketplaces like, like DoorDash or Airbnb, and then you go down the list of like all the different marketplaces or e-commerce companies in the world. No, they're not really doing a fantastic job of matching buyers and sellers and solving this. And if you're really passionate about doing that fantastically well, you're not going to be able to accomplish that by just going to work at another company. So you need to do it for yourselves, own it for yourselves. And then our plan is, well, do it really well, like fantastically well. 
without all of the pressures of internal politics and you know the quarterly stuff and product managers have to get something out the door, but then it's a mess and it never gets fixed. Let's do it right. And then you have it, you own it, and you can provide it as a service to all of these companies and, and really help them grow. So, I mean, that was a great segue into sort of talking about, I think, the show's topic, which is let's start by saying, what is a marketplace? I mean, maybe people understand it as, oh, I go down, you know, to the bazaar down the street and there's merchants selling stuff. But when you say marketplace, what do you mean? Yeah, I mean in a really abstract way, which is you have buyers and you have sellers or you have consumers and you have producers and you're trying to match these two groups. And one example of this is Airbnb or HipCamp, where you have people who are looking for a vacation place and you have people who are posting listings and you need to match these two. Another example is social media. You have people who are posting whatever it is that they, their stories, their news, and then you have people who are consuming that news. And the, the challenge is for the marketplace in like an online marketplace is how do you match the consumers with the producers and also be able to make money from that? And these three groups all have similar objectives, but they're quite different. So for example, you probably never ever want to see an ad, but nevertheless, Facebook or, or Reddit, or, they're gonna show you ads. Well, okay, our sellers wanna make as much money as possible, but there are other sellers. So why have a diversity? They wanna always be first in search, for example, but that's not fair to other sellers and it may not be the best thing for buyers because maybe there's a cheaper price or there's a better match out there. So this idea of solving marketplace is you have these three different parties and how do you present the right offers, the right search results, the right feed results, the right recommendations so that it's balanced so that all three parties are maximized in some way. So oh, there's a lot to unpack there. If we kind of go back to where you were starting off, do you think in a marketplace that there's a difference between, so you mentioned like social media, do you think there's a fundamental difference between, hey, I'm posting a comment, you're coming along and you want to see that comment where there isn't a, let's call it an explicit financial you know, transaction taking place. I'm just writing on Twitter, hey, here's what I had for lunch today. And you know, Twitter might want to show you that because you think that's interesting. Is there a fundamental difference between that and I'm an advertiser saying, look, lunch we're serving at our restaurant today, and I'm willing to pay you to see that. Do you think that is all sort of part of one in the same, or is there a fundamental difference there? Ooh, great question. I think of it as, as fundamentally the same, which is it's an attention marketplace. So that, that's a great point here, which is if you really zoom out here, all you're looking at is your phone screen. That's it. That, that, it's just your phone screen. And then just text and images on your phone screen. Even in a commercial sense, if I'm looking on Amazon, it's still text and images on your phone screen. And yes, you can start layering on pieces like, okay, there's a commercial interest. And, and by the way, promoted AI focuses on commercial attention marketplace. But when you zoom out from this and you think, all right, all I have are, are text and images and placements on a screen. And then how am I going to solve this attention ma matching marketplace where there's no longer this concept of for commerce and retail, there's not a store, there's not like a physical location. It's just people's attention that you're trying to capture in certain ways. And the only tools you have to do that are 
what audio visual movies and images and and text and different channels for being able to send that information that's all you have so for the purpose of sending social media optimization like on twitter like comments and such it's very similar although it may be simpler because you don't have as many different objectives that you're trying to solve for and it's not as high stakes like if i get it wrong most of the time it's not costing anybody any amount of money that are they're, they're then going to be accountable for, which is different than, let's say, an e-commerce site where if I'm consistently getting it wrong, then, well, either I'm going to charge people for like ad revenue that never delivered or people don't buy because they didn't find what they were looking for. So the stakes are higher. But the general concept of trying to capture attention and then measure it and then optimize for it in some way. That loop, that's the core fundamental loop that runs Facebook, that runs Amazon, that runs Google, and runs what Promoted AI does as well. Okay, so, all right, again, again, a bunch of really good observations there. I think that's a really interesting way. I don't know that you hear about that sometimes, that it's an attention marketplace, or they're buying your attention or selling your attention. You hear about this in an almost derogatory sense against social media or against advertisers. But I mean, I think it, you kind of said at the beginning, it's just an abstract thing. You're looking at your phone. Ultimately, something is being, the phone itself is even deciding, hey, am I going to offer to launch this app for you? Or am I going to send you to, you know, your browser on your phone or whatever? Like everybody is sort of trying to prioritize what they think you want or what they think you like or what will keep you coming back. Like you're right. It's a much more generic thing, even driving down the road. What vies for your attention? Is it the signs for the exit or the signs for the local restaurant or the, you know, fancy hotel flashing its lights down the street. Everybody's sort of vying for a piece of, you know, your attention. And I think that's an interesting, I don't, I don't know that I find it inherently malicious. That's a thing. It's just the way life works. I feel like it's kind of always been that way. Oh, it's almost like just saying the quiet thing out loud. It's a lot of the times it's not something people explicitly think about until it becomes adversarial, until it becomes like an advertisement, like a, an obnoxious interrupting advertisement that is so explicit that it demands your attention. That, oh, someone is stealing my attention. But just product design by itself, it, that's balancing your attention. I, I don't know in the last, if, if you've ever driven a Tesla car, now you're starting to experience, oh no, you have so many different competing things for your attention on that on that one screen. But none of these things are, are ads or commercial. It's just there's an attention economy of you have a limited amount of attention. You need to focus on your accomplishing your tasks. And it's the same concept of every time you open your phone and navigate to an e-commerce site or a marketplace. So the marketplace aspect is making it quite explicit where you're taking this as, as opposed to like the more general sense of competing for your attention and like everything that you could be doing or like everything that could be on your screen. It's more of a focused element here of here's a specific destination and what should I show you at this destination to help you accomplish your goals? If you're a buyer or if you're a seller, like how do I capture this incoming resource of people's attention to accomplish your objectives, which are typically, I, I want to sell some sort of product or communicate my message and be found. So on, on that specific comment, I mean, do you think there's a difference between so you were saying, you know, focusing on marketplaces, and I feel like a marketplace, you're going for a specific, well, maybe not all of them. But in many cases, you mentioned like, you know, you want to go to hip camp, or you want to go to, I guess, even like eBay, and you enter, I want to buy a kind of thing. And it's very specific what you're wanting. 
versus if I open Facebook or I just, you know, I guess go to the homepage of Amazon. It's very unclear what my intention is, like what specific I'm interested for. Do you think there's kind of a difference between when people are expressing a specific intent and when they're just saying, hey, I'm here, like show me something? Oh, from a technology perspective, there are some differences in terms of how it's implemented, but it's still a general, it's the same concept of you have uh, one screen and how are you going to capture someone's attention or best fulfill or refine what they're looking for, given the signals that you have. So in the case of like a search, oh, now I know that they've they put in this search query, but there could be a tremendous amount of context around that search query that would help you refine, okay, here are the different results that I want to show. For like a home feed, it's less directed, but you're still trying to figure out, well, what's the best possible results to capture someone's attention or refine it in a way that it can be actionable. And so for the technology, for, for promoted AI, we literally model these two things the same we just change the retrieval set. So it's like, well, if it's uh, like a home feed, then the retrieval set will be things like popular items or things that are of a category that you've interacted with before or like maybe like some top promotions or something like that. And then for a search query, it's okay, it has to be at least relevant to the search query. And then you, you work within that set. But the general technology of, here's the things that are allowed to be shown. And now I want to, within the, that set, find the best matches and then measure the results. And the next feedback loop here is the same. Okay, awesome. So yeah, let's see how maybe that loop. So I, I won't get the terms right, but you kind of mentioned this idea of like rankings. You have all these possible results and you're ranking them and you're ranking them according to some score. Yeah. So like, is it, what is what are kind of some of the things that go into determining how you rank and how you score all of the things that are in your candidate? Yeah, this is something unique to promoted AI or something that we, we focus on as opposed to in general. In general, it's just some kind of quality score. And then if it's better, it's at the top. For promoted AI, and this is getting into the solving the marketplace problem, what we're trying to do is literally predict what's the likelihood of someone interacting with each individual item and then some sort of subsequent action. Did it cause somebody to make an action? And it's not just at individual items, you imagine it's the entire composition as well. So for example, if I show you, if, if let's say you like, like you slightly like red, but maybe you also like blue and I show you all red items, that may not be the best composition. Maybe it's like a mixture of, of red and blue. So for the ranking concept, it's more, first you want good items, but then you also need to compose these items mm -hmm. together into the best results set. And then you're trying to maximize for a user did they take some sort of desired action? Were they successful? And usually that's some sort of purchase decision. Like did they successfully complete a purchase? And it doesn't necessarily have to be on each individual item. It's just the overall composition. So the way that we do this is we are trying to predict the first, just like a general quality score. And then you refine it later by com composing this maximum composition. Like what's, how do I maximize the probability of a purchase given the, a smaller set of high quality items that are probably a good match. So it's like some amount of, if your result set was too similar and people don't get an idea that there's, and maybe I'm, I'm being too abstract, but if they're too similar, people don't get a feel that there's like a diversity, that there isn't a richness versus if you show a few diverse items, even if you think 
individually they wouldn't be the best result, then you're letting the user know, hey, there's a lot of richness here. Yes, is that's it correct. Like, is yep. There's some other aspects here too, which is you have other objectives. So this is getting back to what we were talking about in the beginning, where you have three different parties with different objectives. You have the buyer or like the, the consumer. Then you also have the sellers or like who the content owners, and then you have the marketplace itself. So for example, you want to make sure that all of your sellers or all of your content producers get some amount of exposure. And if you greedily just giving the most popular contents, then you have the starvation problem where you're never getting like, new contents ever surfaced, which is terrible for people who are creating new contents, never get any delivery, but also eventually it becomes bad for users. They just don't know about it like literally right now today, it's more of like a long-term challenge. And so another thing that you're trying to solve for is not just today for this specific instance, the best user experience, and even accounting for like this composition aspect, like diversity, you're also solving for the seller experience, like each seller needs to get some amount of rotation or else you starve them out, which causes this long-term problem in the future where you don't have any producers anymore. And then you also have the marketplace challenge, which is if it's a commercial marketplace, you either are making a fraction of the sale. So there's a consideration of how much profit is this if any, or if it's more of like an intention marketplace, like social media, you have to show some ads because that's your business. Well, which ads do you show and how many and like how obnoxious are you going to make it before you start trading off user experience in a way that people just stop using your product? So it's not just finding the best contents, but it's also the best composition of contents. And then you have other longer term considerations of the sellers, like sellers need to have good matches. And even if there's like some trade offs, there's to get some rotation for longer term objectives. And then for the marketplace, it's how are you going to make this into a business? And how are you going to make money from it? And then modeling for that and gen and, and the way promoted AI deals with this is when we're making these decisions, we're trying to quantify them in actual dollars. Or, or some sort of absolute unit. So it's not just about, hey, this is how this is the best composition. It's here's the value of this composition. And if you deviate from that, like if here's my best possible user experience, and if I deviate from the best possible user experience, what's the difference in this value objective? And then you convert that into dollars. So you're creating, you're not just solving the best result, but how much you want that best result so that you can do these sort of unit conversions and, and maximize this objective across three different parties and do trade-offs. Yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, this may be a bit off topic and we can return, but when you say you price everything in dollars, but some of it is the short term, like will the user click and buy this thing? Yeah. And some of it, will the user be happy and return to the marketplace? Yeah. But one of those is like today dollars and one of them is tomorrow dollars. Yes. Like, do you have to do a trade-off, like time value of money and say like, a user's lifetime value over the next year versus capturing this amount of money today. Yes. Yeah, you have to. And and by the way, it may not be literally modeled in dollars. I think that's more of a abstraction. But from the math of it, if you are running a commercial marketplace, then yeah, it, it does. The units will work out to dollars. So you have to have, be conscientious that you are putting a dollar sign on these decision trade-offs. So 
it's we find it's better to explicitly acknowledge that and try to model with it versus just kind of having each lever and kind of goofing around with it and not thinking about it so carefully. But yes, there is a trade-off of long versus short-term revenue and or or like short-term experience versus long-term experience. And this is where the art and the science start to merge where sometimes you or will never be able to exactly measure these sorts of things and or or like if you look at the dollar signs it doesn't quite line up but it's still the right product experience you you do have to have some human in the loop to figure out okay is this the right trade off for me at this time or what is the actual experience but that doesn't mean you shouldn't try to quantify it you, you should definitely be watching it you should definitely do it on purpose but that doesn't mean you're going to get like some sort of perfect machine where uh, everything is exactly modeled. Like that's just not how economics works in any system and definitely not like some sort of long-term user preference sort of modeling. So I'm not a machine learning background person by trade, but given that, that you have AI in the name and assuming you use machine learning, which I feel like is a good guess, that you started talking about this starving out new sellers and just needing to show them. And it reminds me of, I guess, the example where trying to balance this constant thing between exploration voice versus exploitation. And you yeah. have a bank of slot machines on the casino floor and they all have a slightly different payout and you don't know which one to go to. So you go to your first one, you pull and you get a jackpot. Well, do you just keep playing that same one over and over again? And the answer is like mathematically, no, because there might be one with even a better payout, you know, somewhere else or a higher probability. Yeah. And by not continuing to try all of them with some probability, you won't have that. So can you speak a little bit about like, I mean, obviously some of it probably gets into secret sauce and, you know, we can't really talk about exactly what goes on, but from a, you know, a, a kind of a rudimentary understanding of machine learning, how do you guys sort of get in the data that you use to figure out how to build your models? How are you training models? Deploying, like what is sort of the yeah. technology that you guys have going on behind all of what you're saying? Oh yeah, great questions. No, I love you brought up the Thompson sampling part. I, I do believe that, Sometimes these are tried to be solved in more like a textbook way, which isn't how it's done in practice. Because imagine that the Thompson sampling challenge, but like you're constantly getting new slot machines and all the slot machines are also changing and you don't know. <laughs> that sounds easier. <laughs> so yeah, exactly. The way that we handle it is first, we have a whole metrics infrastructure where any sort of optimization, and I think this is another element that people miss out from machine learning, like in practice. Most of machine learning is measurement and data infrastructure. And then the next part of machine learning in practice is machine learning operations, like stuff goes wrong and you need to fix it like and know that it's wrong. And solving those two things will get you almost all of the problem. I mean, that's no secret. Uh, Go for it. I mean, it's complicated. I mean, that's where the engineering part comes in. It's hard. The modeling itself is not that complicated. In fact, if you look at, well, it can get complicated. Like once you have the basics in place, then you can start really piling on all sorts of complicated machine learning neural networks and you get into like Facebooks and Googles of the world. But just correctly measuring what's happening and being able to collect that data reliably and react on it in like near real time gets you almost all of the hard part. So what we're doing is we're measuring what was supposed to be shown. 
what was shown? Did someone actually see it? Which, by the way, is challenging where, like, think about it. Like, how did you see it? Did you not see it? There's all sorts of streaming signals. And, and I mean, just turn on the it. camera and you look at their gaze, right? Like, there's no, no don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, it's like, did someone see it? Did they click on it? By the way, oh, my gosh. Like, if you get in the details, someone in mobile engineering, like, what does a click mean on a mobile? Oh, gosh. Like, did they buy it? Did like, how long ago did they buy it? Like just measuring what people did reliably. And now you have reliable metric stream. And now you're going to try to predict back that metric stream. And you're going to try to do it in a way of attributing it back to did it was someone's action caused by them seeing something on some surface that you can control. So like search results or, or feed. If it wasn't caused by it, then changing it won't cause that to go up more. So that's another important part of, you need this sort of causal estimate of you seeing something that you can change caused some sort of future action. And if you don't measure that part, like you just take all the actions together, then you won't be able to have a training set that you can train a model to cause someone to do something else. So it's, causal measurement. Now you have the training examples to then try and make people do more of the thing you want them to do and, and less of the thing you don't want them to do, like typically leave or not complete some sort of. So you're predicting for the next search results or feed results or the next thing you're going to show in this sort of featured area, what is going to cause this metric stream to create the objective, which is usually some sort of purchase What's the maximum probability for that? What's the result set that will maximize that probability considering these other things of like exploration. So the way that we handle it is it's like layers of models on models on models on models. So like you start with like a simple model for retrieval, like, is it relevant? Like, is it allowed to be shown? And then you have a next set for, okay, assuming every single item could be placed first, what's the probability in isolation? what's the probability that someone is going to click and then convert on this item. And then once you have like a smaller set, then you say, all right, for all these top sets, I want to maximize my composition. And I have these rules about, okay, diversity of like say different categories, or I have some sort of exploration rule where I'm purposely inserting some new items and sort of maximize within that. And then like the idea of diversity, like how much diversity or how much boosting? Well, that's Another model on top of this, which is, okay, given all of the data that I've seen, it's a, a like a feature that you can tune according to here are lots of different users. Here's what the results were, like come up with an estimate for the ideal amount of diversity for like, here's uh, generally the conversion probability, but also things like marketplaces will have a concept of some sort of like seller objective, like they want some amount of seller success new seller success, like how much diversity does that take or how much boosting does that take to be able to accomplish that sort of business objective of seller success or new seller success. And um, if you have ads, then now you're doing a trade-off where, okay, I'm going to remove some user quality and I'm going to insert something else. So how much is it worth it to that advertiser to be inserted, which is usually some sort of estimate of click or, or conversion and then their bid and then like the user experience like i've displaced some amount of that user value that we've estimated and i guess a couple of steps ago i just talked about convert it into dollars and then if the bid exceeds that lost value 
show it. And if not, don't show it. That's how it's done. It's like you, every level you're trying to come up with, this is what this system is trying to accomplish, come up with some objective. And then the next layer will use that output from the previous system as an input to come up with some sort of higher level objective. And then the whole thing is being continuously tuned, measured, and optimized with this real-time streaming data that is checking to see, oh, well, the model yesterday thought it was you know X, but now it's starting to drift more towards Y, so you need to make these adjustments. This thing you said about metrics, I think is, as a bit of a, an aside, I don't know like if it's just a bad word, or but this ability to say that you know that your code is doing the thing it was supposed to do or that the thing you wanted to happen, I feel is undervalued or underthought about that I see this not just in the domain we're talking about, but just even yeah. stuff I do that's completely unrelated. People miss that. This, you know, you always make that joke where someone says it, the code compiled, it's done. But I would <laughs> say people even say, oh, it, it runs and it's done. And it's not just like unit testing. I mean, maybe that's one way, yeah. but even just whole stack tracking, like, hey, the code is supposed to accomplish this goal. Like, are you actually measuring it? Are you actually saying is the output reasonable? Are you monitoring it? Are you recording yeah. it? And I think people don't, they try to tack it on at the end Check rather than end. saying like, this is something we need to build in that we're monitoring the health of the system. I, I think part of it is it's painful. It's really, it, it's not fun for a lot of the times. It's not sexy. It's not like directly accomplishing some sort of business goal in the sense of like, oh, I'm going to apply machine learning and I'm going to get 10% more conversions. Like, fantastic, great. But <laughs> what are you going to apply it on? And how do you know it's still working? Oh, well, that's not directly accomplishing my goal, right? So I think people love to jump straight to the sexy piece because it's a little bit on the nose of, oh yes, I want my objective to go up. So I'm going to do the thing that makes my objective go up. But the measurement part, that's really challenging because you have to look at the nitty gritty of, oh no, front, if you're back end, like, oh no, front end code. And, you know, and then you have to like log it someplace and then it needs to be continuously streaming. And that's a really challenging cha problem. Or like you just send it to, uh, what I've seen is people just punt and just send it to Snowflake. And, uh. and then it's sort of like <laughs> Snowflake's problem. But then you have to build on, you still have to do something with the data. Yeah. yeah, you know, if you're doing any kind of optimization or maximization, and you want to do it quantitatively. Don't you think it's an important part to measure it correctly first and make sure that like what you're trying to maximize is like you have it, like you know what it is. And surprisingly, people don't think that way. What they like to hear is like, hey, we have machine learning. Bring your own data. And you can just plug in your own data and then our magical machine learning will just figure it out. Well, okay, in the very best case, the, whatever the machine learning is going to do is going to reproduce your crappy measurement, which is going to be worthless because it's not instrumented well and it's not variable coverage and there's all sorts of biases and gaps. Well, what's the value of that? But like you could say, look, we did machine learning. Anyways, getting back to <laughs> your original prompt of how do you feel about measurement, Andrew? It's critical. And it's not just like the data signals, but also things like our you correctly measuring things like did this cause this other thing i think if you start talking to like a growth team or like someone who has to buy ads they really start getting interested in measurement because it's their butts on the line like if, if you go to netflix for example like they have 
an enormous marketing science team or Wayfair or like a lot of these big uh, companies, they have an enormous data science measurement team on are my ad campaigns working on Facebook and Google because they're spending tens of millions or hundreds of millions of dollars on marketing. But then you look at like your own system. So a lot of people work in big tech or like you look at your own marketplace, your e-commerce or like your own product. Did you actually produce any of those types of measurements? Like, did you do any of that kind of instrumenting for being able to measure your own thing? No, you didn't. And so like, how are you going to optimize on top of it? it? It kind of blows my mind that people don't take the same sort of rigor that they will on the, the buy side. If like, you're going to go build a Google AdWords campaign and like, oh, I, I must know if this is working. Look at all the measurement and the careful attribution models and like, is it working? But then you go back to your own product and then like, is your own product working? People like, oh, we'll just slap a dash a couple things. And, and then you want to layer on top of machine learning. Good luck. Wow. Yeah, I think we had a good topic there. Hold on for a long time. <laughs> yeah, it's good. Break. It's good. I think you're right. I mean, I think a lot of people, stuff just works and don't touch what's working. And if it ain't broke, don't fix it. I think people have that. They're not measuring it. They're just say, hey, in the end, it's this number of sales or yeah. whatever. And actually like introspectively thinking about what's working or why. Even if you're not in a machine learning environment, even like not a huge, big product, I think people, yeah, it's a great insight. So I guess in the position your company is in, where you're sort of saying, we're going to come help you sort of build this, we're, we're going to become experts yes. in the ability of matching buyers and sellers and helping marketplaces, yeah. but not be the marketplace yourself. You then have to build into your APIs the ability for people to hook in their measurements and then like, how does that work from sort of like marketplace to marketplace, like a lot carry over? Or do you have to start again with each new sort of like integration you guys are doing? Oh, we don't believe in other people's measurement. I'll be entirely honest. <laughs> we provide our own measurement solution. And that's where most of the value comes from. We'll help you do the measurement correctly. But by the way, when I was at Facebook, I was also in the, the measurement science group as well. So like I have a lot of... Uh, background and, and understanding of like the importance of, of measurement and data. And then we also have hooks for if you have your own data, you, you can work it in as well. What, what we see is that no, it's actually quite generalizable. Like, yes, the exact rules and the data itself are different. But this engine of measure what people see, standardize the path of did people engage with it? Did they convert on it? and then be able to predict that back is very generalizable. Yeah, I guess a couple more questions and we'll kind of start to wrap it up. We haven't really touched on like, you mentioned how important it is for a buyer to know that they're getting the, a seller selling an ad, yep. the ad buyer. <laughs> I guess that's a two-sided thing. Yeah. Uh, it wants to really make sure they're getting their money's worth. People who you know purchase something on the marketplace want to know, like everybody has yes. this very, money's changing hands and people get upset when, expectations are unmet right so keeping your platform up working the rankings making sense like yes. all of that how do you guys like treat and like kind of maybe a glimpse inside the back-end stack that you guys have set up to sort of make sure that you're reliably accomplishing the the mission you're stating yeah so before we were talking a little bit about these models stacked on tops of models and this is really important because each model is supposed to have some objective you can measure like objectively measure so for example a click prediction model 
is predicting clicks. And so the average number of click predictions should equal the actual number of clicks. And you can that should be globally and for individual items. There's each, each of these layers have some objective truth that you're comparing it against. And you're checking to make sure are these predictions equal to what's actually happening. And if it's not, either something is broken or something has like drifted and you need to make a correction. So that's a core piece of it. The others are from the system design and then like like SRE type of pieces of it. So like um, any kind of abnormality type of detection where we have a lot of the different signaling instrumentation for did something suddenly change and and why like did something break or like was an integration changed and on our side we have a, a shadow traffic tier for our own deployments but we're also continuously measuring it for our customers as well because what we see sometimes is someone ships a feature and then that breaks some sort of logging and if logging is broken all of what we were just talking about like in terms of all the system depending on accurate measurement then those start to fail so you want to be able to react to that very quickly and then another aspect from the marketplace design is it's not all just watching metrics. There has to be some sort of design to it. So for example, this idea of like, how do you know advertisers or like sellers are getting a good deal? Well, you design the system in a way where they're bidding for the objective that they're trying to accomplish. And so long as those predictions are correct, then they're going to be correctly bidding for the most promising opportunities. And then from the pricing algorithm, you want it to be designed so that this is getting more like auction theory piece, which like you want a dominant strategy type of auction where you want it so that the highest, the, the optimal strategy is always to bid your true value. And you're trying to set up a system so that it's stable and not just like a computer system, but also like the economic system as well. And even some of these are abstract, like people don't know what their true value is, but this idea of like there's exists a single value that's optimal for the best possible competitive ad pricing so that you don't have to then have another system try for every single uh, search result, come up with the correct bid. So like keeping it all working has an element of watching metrics making sure that if you're making any kind of predictions or any kind of metrics, they're like they're streaming in a predictable way, like there's no sudden changes. And if there are changes, like you have either disaster recovery in place, or if it's like a model drift, which is natural, uh, like in, hey, there's a new item. And of course, it's new that the models are able to adapt pretty quickly to, to, to deal with it. And then there's like the system design where the whole economic system altogether is designed in such a way that if everyone is behaving independently the way that they're supposed to, that the overall marketplace is optimizing in a reasonable way. That's some sort of system design that is like how we specialize in building these sorts of things. Yeah, I mean, I think the the auction theory and bidding is something people know. Google famously, you know, came up with this what is the name a uh, second price no what is it? oh man gsp generalized second price auction i hate it ah i did have it i had it half right and so I, I think people kind of maybe have read about this but like this thing you're saying which is the optimizations work best when you have the most information and setting up the system so that everyone understands that hey this is fair that there's not a lot of weirdness going on or, or cheating of the system that someone's doing getting special handling or treatment yeah allows everything to just run more smoothly think of it I, I think people get distracted by 
imagining literal people bidding in an auction. A little paddle? Is, yeah, exactly. Which is not what's happening. Okay. You have, even in the Google sense, which, or like a search engine sense, where at least you have a search result that you can sort of bid on, like a keyword. There's, it's a bidding interface. Like you have all of these complicated computer systems actually doing the real bidding and you just have like this itty bitty window. Think of it more as you're designing a computer system, but you want to have your, you want to have compartmentalized systems and numerically you want them compartmentalized. And this is just good software design, but you, you can also think of this like good software design principle from numerical systems as well. And we talked a little bit about this from the stacking of these different systems where each system has a clear objective that you can objectively measure by itself with objective data. And you can do the same thing from the economic system as well. Like if your bidding interface is, if your, if your auction is designed using this quote dominant strategy idea, then there's only a single value that will maximize for this specific auction. But like, it's not usual, not, there's, no, there's like no one with a paddle who's actually trying to do that. You actually have other systems layer on top of each other. But what, you're, what you've done here is you've just removed one extra uh, interaction with other systems so that the overall system is a little bit more stable and, and able to be tuned better. Whereas this famous GSP Google auction thing, it's so far removed from what they're actually doing. I think they have like 20 or something PhD students just doing nothing but like messing around with like auction design. There's like so many different pieces to it. It's more of just, hey, external buyer, it's just a magical black box and, and we're just trying to help you accomplish your objective. And ultimately that's what it becomes is at the Google level, it's here's your bidding interface and Google is just trying to help you accomplish the maximum amount of your goal while taking as much possible profit as it can, as it feels like it's able to do before people start dropping out of its, its ad auction. So like in terms of, hey, Google does GSP, it's so far removed from that. It's not even useful to be thinking about that anymore because there's so many different modifications and tweaks. It's more of like, think of it more from like achieving your objective. Awesome. Yeah. I mean, to wrap up, we're going to talk a little bit about Permitted Day as a company. But yeah. before we do that, I know that you were part of a Y Combinator class. And I think Y Combinator has a, I'll tout it as like a sort of mythical place in startups and doing your own company and the people associated with it and uh-huh. a longevity, which I think has been uh, particularly interesting. So do you mind speaking for a few minutes, maybe about no, nothing in particular? I mean, just what you would share with people or what your experiences were as part of that? Yeah, we did last winter, twenty winter 2021. And that was great. Now, as far as a place, no, not anymore. I mean, I suppose they physically have a place, but it was all remote. And this was still the peak COVID a year ago. Ugh, yeah, a year ago. My experience of it was, it was fantastic. I highly recommend it. It's expensive. At the time, they didn't give you as much capital, but oh well, oh well. But it's still like 7% of your company. But I think it's in one sense that it's expensive, but in the other sense, it's a good value in that it solves a lot of the risk of a new startup of you will get some funding, you will get some credibility, you have a network. Like these sorts of distractions 
if you try to do it by yourself, if you can do it by yourself and you know you can and you don't need it, go for it. Like, great. But even if you're pretty confident that you can, just like having it done for you so you can focus on building a product and talking to sell users and selling, it's a big time saver. And I do feel like another aspect is the one of the most valuable resources you have as a startup is your time. And especially for like later career people who have been in big tech for a few years, your time has a dollar sign now, right? Like you could be making a million dollars a year doing whatever it is at big tech. So an extra six months of your time screwing around trying to get the best possible seed deal has an opportunity cost of, well, half a million dollars, literally doing the math, right? Like do Y Combinator because you're serious about making your startup work and you want to make it work faster rather than slower because you have other things you could be doing with your life. And there's also a lot of positive effects about helping a startup grow faster rather than slower in terms of momentum. A momentum can only help you. So I recommend it. I also feel that from like a, a fun perspective, no, it's uh, you sit at your computer and you need to do work. Yeah, uh, I guess maybe that has changed a lot over the years. They've grown a lot as well. So, I mean, it's interesting to hear, but I mean, I think those aspects of doing a startup, that's particularly helpful. I think we do have listeners who've been at big tech for a while, always entertain this idea of going and doing a startup. But these things you say are, are real problems, which is like you said, every month you take to determine if your startup will succeed or fail has an actual lost opportunity cost to it. And so, you know, moving that, moving the ball forward there, I guess, is a great way of thinking about it. I, I think, again, I do believe that for people who are mid career, later career, like you'll see later career people, like I had a former person in my leadership chain, they just went straight to Sequoia and they're like, okay, do series A, like, like, fine. If you are like VP of engineering or CTO of like a publicly traded company and you can just go straight to Sequoia and get like $10 million and go right out of the gate, fine. But most people probably listening to this podcast, like in the general populace, okay, are not at that sort of level. Probably if you're at that level, you could just self-fund yourself at $10 million and <laughs> care. By the way, you'll see that for, from startup funding. It's like people will give you money you already have. You'll find a lot easier in that, in that sense. Get it done. Like a Y Combinator is a good way to reliably get the earliest, most fragile stages of your company done so that you can get to the next stage, which is finding product market fit. There are other paths, like you can go to the seed funds, they'll get you started. There are other incubators. I don't really recommend other incubators. I don't know why you would do it other than Y Combinator. I think you should just go straight to a, like a seed fund if you have that ability. But anyways, I think it's an, I think it's a, a good average bet. It's not the best. You could definitely do better, but it's definitely not the worst. That's a that's great advice. So promoted AI as a company, what is it like to work there? Are you guys hiring interns sort of pitch us on joining promoted AI? Yeah, we need Flink experts. So if you're an expert in Flink, send me an email. That's that's our number <laughs> one hire. We also would like to hire someone for uh, continuous integration and deployment like SRE. Those are our two biggest needs. And then we also need someone on React. If you're a React expert, we're looking for someone on that as well. So those are our open positions. But let me tell you a little bit more about working for us. We are a very lean team. We explicitly only have hired our ex-colleagues from Facebook or Google. So my co-founder, Dan, he was at Google before. Dan and I, we met at Pinterest. We were EMs there together. So that, that's how we met each other. And so we're only very experienced 
engineers. And that allows us to, and who've worked in the space before. So this allows us to build really fantastic, complicated systems in a very fast way. Whereas we wouldn't be able to do that if we had done more of a traditional sort of company building, which is you kind of hire up like 20 people and they're maybe sort of junior or maybe unproven. And then you like build an MVP and it's like maybe pretty crappy, but it gets the job done. For the type of market we're going after, we we really pitch to the top of our market. And we're also trying to solve the really fantastic marketplace matching system that we were never really quite able to build. We have the like variety of reasons at some of these really good companies that have good brands. Like, well, I'm, I'm not going to name any, but they, <laughs> yeah. So working at Promoted is like working with, what if you took all of the expert engineers and just had a team of the best people and were able to move very quickly and build a really fantastic system and be able to sell it to companies where maybe they have an okay system, but having it to be amazing, like a really great system is really worth it for them at their scale. Wow. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a a really great point you brought up about pitching experienced software engineers to come and help your team really gives an entirely different flavor than casting a wide net and saying, Hey, if you're, if you have skills, like come here, or if you are willing to learn, come here. I mean, I think both can be useful and probably at different stages of growth. But I yes. think, yeah, I hear you about, you know, having been around the block a couple times, uh-huh. you really sort of know the advantage of having a really cracked team going and solving. A- it's necessary for the stage that we're in and our strategy. There's a lot of startups out there, a ton, right? And everyone knows the typical strategy of you, you, you throw some MVP over the wall and like it, it needs to do something simple, but it does it. And then you get a bunch of customers and then you raise a bunch of capital and then you fix it later. Like you make it better and better and you like go up market. We did the opposite, which is we started at the top of our market and which is a huge or much bigger build and then make it work really well. And then we're going to generalize it and eventually we'll go raise some sort of series B or C or whatever, and we'll expand the engineering team. But we're starting from this core that is really fantastic. And you're doing more of like adding features or solutions engineering, which is more appropriate for more junior engineers who are working within an existing system. They wouldn't know how to design a really fantastic system that would work at other big companies because they've never worked at these bigger companies. So they don't know what their problems would be. So like, how could they possibly design that sort of system? And this also allows us to work remotely. So we're all remote. This wasn't by design, it was a COVID issue, but this allows us where, because everyone has prior experience, people already know generally, this is what we're trying to build together. So there's not this big overhead of trying to explain, um, this is why we're building it, or like a lot of product management overhead or engineering management overhead each individual expert can self-manage to build the pieces that they already know what they're supposed to be or how they could be better because they've already seen it at other companies like say Twitter or Grab or, or Pinterest, like Facebook or Google are, are positive examples, but maybe also like, okay, these are overbuilt. So here are the pieces that we wouldn't really need, but here are the critical pieces that we definitely have to have that allows us to move very quickly. So that's the style of promoted where it takes some discipline. It's sometimes kind of hard. Like, 
oh, we're not going to do the quick, easy win. We're going to really invest in the hard stuff like streaming data systems and getting the latency down really low because we know that that's the foundation that you can build a fantastic system on and then we'll go and expand on it later. But we build a team like that as well. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Andrew. I felt like this has been a great episode. I mean, I learned a lot. It was, it was great talking to you. Thank you. I had a lot of fun as well. So, and thank you everyone for listening and we'll see you next time.